Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially those who are with us for the first time. Glad you are here. Thank you for taking an hour out of your life and making us your church today. We want to start a new series, and uh, the series is titled Partnering with Grace. Partnering with Grace. So we will be on this probably through the balance of October, maybe into the first or second week of November. And today, I'd like to concentrate on what it means to understand the grace to be. The grace to be. So turn with me over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's gotten to the place that he's beginning to give an epilogue, and he's talking about his own life, and he describes himself in, in terms that are unusual for a man of his stature and influence. He says in in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove to be vain. Lord, help us as we study. Two things about which I'd like to speak to you. One, Paul's weighty past and yours, and Paul's weightier present. Anybody got a past? If you haven't, it's only because you haven't lived long enough. Even those of you who grew up in really godly homes, you have a past. Mom and dad don't know about your past. You kept much of what you did wrong from them. But you know you. You know what you did. You know what you thought. You have a past. Now, Paul's past was uniquely weighty in that he did some things that most of us would never have considered doing, much less really done. Though we have done some things with respect to the intent of our heart that probably fell in line with what Paul did. Jesus upped the ante of the law. He made it even more difficult with respect to bringing it down to heart motivation rather than just action. He said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit murder. I tell you that if you've called your brother a fool or you've hated him in your heart, you've already been found guilty before the high court of heaven. Wow. I hear the gavel sounding now for 1,200 adults in this room. All of us have been at at that point with somebody at some place in our life. So though we didn't do what, what Saul did, who later became Paul, boy, our hearts have been leaning toward things like that. And therefore, probably, in the grand court of glory, we could be found just as guilty if we didn't restrain those things in our own soul. Saul was a persecutor of the church. And it had to weigh on him. I mean, Paul was a, was a fabulous philosopher. 
We take the Bible for granted that this is just good theology. But remember, he had to come up with it. Everybody was trying to figure out, the church in Jerusalem, how do we work with Gentiles? First of all, they thought they didn't need to because Gentiles were an afterthought of God, if a thought at all. So there was no real intent to incorporate us into the covenant because Jesus was a Jewish Messiah sent to Jewish people. And from their perspective, when Jesus said, go into all the, <clears throat> all the world and preach this gospel, they heard, go into all of the Jewish world and preach this gospel. Find Jewish people and make them disciples wherever you go. They didn't think that Jesus actually meant go and find folk that never had any, any point of, of contact with the covenant? Are you, we had always been considered enemies and virtually permanently lost people. It wasn't until Peter had that revelation in Simon's home where a sheep came out of heaven and he was in a trance and God said, get up and eat these unclean things for what I have called clean, you stop calling unclean. And Peter understood that to mean that we who were not a part of the covenant were not to be included. But it took a divine revelation for Peter to get it. Paul was already on that trail and he was developing theology around what it meant to incorporate us intentionally. That we, we didn't have to go through all the stuff that the Jews went through in order to be legitimate believers. Jewish people needed to be circumcised. And the Jewish people thought that every Gentile that came in, male, needed to be circumcised. Boy, that's in the ranks in a hurry, wouldn't it? You want to be saved today? Uh, bro, I think I'll pass. <laughs> you know, give me a week to think about this thing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That, that was church for the Jewish folks. And so every Gentile needed, and Paul was saying, no. Where did he get this? Well, we think probably he got it when he, he talks about this man. He says, I don't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. Went up to heaven, 2 Corinthians 12. Saw something he couldn't even talk about. Most of the theology that Paul gives is stuff God let him say. The other stuff God didn't let him say. That shows you the relationship that Paul had with, with Jesus. I mean, when, when somebody tells you something and then they say, don't tell anybody else. What do we call that? Wow. God had such a good relationship with Paul. He said, come here. This is just for you and me. <laughs> God doesn't waste any time, nor does he waste a breath. And yet he thought Paul was so intimate with him and important enough to get information that was only for his ears. Wow. But the rest of the stuff he got to share with us. And it was all about how to incorporate Jew and Gentile. And what it looked like, not just in terms of... of Theology, but an interpretation from the Old Testament, bringing allegory and metaphor, talking about Hagar being the, 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 the one who would bear the son from the law and then Sarah would be the son, bear the son from the promise and, and what that was. And he used all this stuff. And you sit there, we read it as, as gospel, but for the first time, folks were looking at this saying, wow, this is stunning. But as great as it was for him to get information about how the church ought to be, it was equally challenging 
and great for him to, to try to figure out how do I process my life. And here, he's tried to fix all the church at, at, at Corinth's problems, which were many. That's why it took at least three letters. If God has to write three letters to you, it's not necessarily because he's affectionate towards you. Yes, he loves you, but he's trying to help you through truth. Three, we know there are three, although we have two, because in the first letter, he talks about a letter he previously wrote. We just don't have it. So there were three. The church at Corinth had issues. And at the end of the second letter, which is the first letter we have, he begins to talk about his, his qualifications. And he says, I, I want you to know, I'm, I'm the least. I'm not really even worthy to be called an apostle. And, and while doing this, he realizes I might be giving ammunition for you to shoot me. Because the church in Corinth was beginning to gravitate toward other men that they considered more, more eloquent and had greater prowess. And yet Paul doesn't mind telling the reality about his life. But in the middle of it, <clears throat> you sense some self-reflection. It's not just giving facts. He's not just reporting here. He's talking about process. He said, I'm not even worried. I am the least of all the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called one because I, was a, I persecuted the church. I hurt people real bad. I sent, I sent folks to heaven. Yeah, I did that. And then he gives greater definition. He doesn't do so much to the church at Corinth. <coughs> Excuse me, but he does <coughs> to Timothy. Forgive me. <coughs> and to Timothy, he says this. I was a blasphemer, a violent aggressor, a persecutor of the church, one not worthy to be called a minister. Yet God decided to choose me as one upon whom he would place his mercy. And in giving me mercy, he made me an example to everybody else about what his patience looked like. I am not even worthy. In fact, I was the one who could be described as the foremost of sinners. Nobody was worse than me. And as he's giving this testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he expands what he has said in, 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 in Corinthians. And, and he goes through and he's giving his testimony. Remember, Paul, for the most part, was, was dictating his letters. The ones that he actually wrote with his own hand, he says so at the end. Galatians, he says, I'm, I'm writing this with my own hand. Look at what, what large letters I'm using. But most of the time he dictated. So he had a scribe. And the guy was trying to keep up. And, and as, you're, as you're writing, you can get emotionally involved with what you're saying, but you are slowed by your hand. And so you, 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 you can't really say it like you want to say it as well as you'd like to say it because your hand can't keep up with your mind. But if you've got a scribe who can write in shorthand, Boy, you can just talk. And in Timothy, he gets so involved with his testimony, you can feel the pathos just coming out of him to where he gets to the end. And he says, now to the king, eternally mortal, invisible, the only God, to him be glory and honor forever and ever. And you think, wait a minute, how did he get there from his testimony? 
your testimony has to be so intertwined with the redemptive grace of God that it must lead you to the cross. It must lead you to Jesus because if you only view your past through the eyes of your pain and the reality of what you've done, you will always make it bigger than him. You've got to wind up there now to my king. Eternal, immortal, and, and through his testimony, he gives us the most succinct idea of what it meant to, to really understand and embrace the incarnation. Now to the king, eternal and immortal. Please don't get religious on that. Let that sit with you for a minute because eternal and immortal are oxymoronic terms. You can't put them together. Eternal means this. No beginning, no end. Immortal means has a start, but no end. How can you be both eternal and immortal? He's only talking about Jesus because he's the only one. He was eternal in that he was a son before he was born as a child. He was a son of God. But he had a body that started at a certain point, but it has no end. Oh, it, and I mean, do you know how much time it takes for us to talk about the incarnation? Yeah, I mean, we need th five, six, seven, eight, nine, a year's worth of sermons. He did it in 16 words. <laughs> Better than anybody ever could. How? Because he made sure that every time he talked about his past, he interwove all the redemptive benefits of who his God was to make him what he needed to be, not stay where he was. Boy, you need, you need to make sure that Jesus touches your past at every point. Or else you will never be able to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You will be able to say, by his mercy, I'm not what I was. See, mercy and grace are closely related. And it's hard. They're inextricably bound. It's really impossible to separate them, but you can distinguish them. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. That's mercy. And, and, and what, we, what we deserve is death. The wages of our sin is death. That's what we deserve. And, and we're not getting it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Christopher is happy. I can, always, I can always depend on him. If y'all are lagging, he will pick up for y'all. But now that you know what you should have said, say some, please. Thank you very much. You are not going to suffer. For the, you're not, you not going to inherit the consequences of your misdeeds. That is a great thing. That's mercy. So now you aren't what you were. And that's, that's really wonderful. But grace, grace goes beyond what mercy does. Grace allows you the privilege of becoming what you never could be. Because grace gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy makes sure you don't get what you do deserve. Grace gives you what you don't deserve. Identity, power, hope, salvation. Grace is that package that allows you to now say, after you have looked at your past through the redemptive benefits of the cross, the only, the only reason I am who I am is by his grace. Now listen, if you can't say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, but you can only say, by the mercy of God, I'm not what I used to be, 
then you have some grace to apply yet. Because this isn't a statement that needs to be made only when somebody becomes as mature as Paul. This is a statement that needs to be made about tomorrow, that you aren't what you were today. Because grace has been so applied to your life that you can say, I'm different than I was yesterday. My mindset is different. My outlook is different about what my future should be. My outlook is different about what my past is to me. And most of us have a difficult enough time looking at the future, primarily because we have a really hard time ignoring the past. It just hits us all the time. It hits me. Listen, I I really try to live in faith every day of my life. And the only reason I am as healthy in my soul as I am is because I intentionally live in faith every day of my life. I probably need to live in more faith. But the faith with which I apply it to my past is intentional every day. There are moments where I get up in the morning and the enemy hits me. You know what you did. You know what you did. And you're not qualified. There's nothing about your life would say that you are supposed to be here. I say, you're right. You're right. But that's what grace does. It's not because I deserve it. And so then I intentionally begin to move into the realm that God provides so I can be what I can't be on my own so I can do what I couldn't do without him. That's the only way. You know me as Pastor Brett. My, my immediate family that I grew up with knows me as Brett. And so my sister and my brother, I've said this many times, my sister comes and my brother, my brother, you know, he's my brother. He, after I preach, good job, good. That's what brothers do. My sister sits there on the front row, she goes, And then afterwards, I get down. She just kissed me. I'm so proud of you. Listen, she's not proud of what I've done. She's proud of who I've become because she knew me. She knew me. And I look at her and I say, whatever you know me to be, I am what I am by his grace. That's it. I can point to nothing else. Have I studied hard? Yeah. Is there never a time when I am not prepared to preach to you? In 25 years of pastoring, never have I not been prepared. I study hard every week. I may not present from one Sunday as well as another, but it doesn't have anything to do with my work ethic. Do I pray and make sure that my life is full of integrity as best I know how? Do I ask God for for forgiveness for my sin? Yeah. But none of that stuff qualifies me. The only reason I can be of any benefit to you is because of his grace. That's it. Now, Paul is not talking about here, duty or job responsibility. He's talking about calling and being, which are inseparable in Scripture. Distinguishable, but inseparable. Your calling 
is that which God has, has thought about when he thought about creating you and put as destiny on your life to fulfill. It doesn't have much to do with your job description. It can, but it doesn't have to. I just happen to be the kind of person that he is called, and somebody said, he's so called and good enough, we need to pay him. And so they gave me a job. Other people are called differently, and you're called to, you, you, you have a different kind of job, but you are nonetheless called to be a minister. There are so many people in my leadership, not on staff, but in the leadership, that if they were to stand up and talk to you, you'd think, are you in full-time ministry? They confuse them all the time with being a minister. In their mind, a minister who is paid to do this. But they were in title companies. They're businessmen that started entrepreneurial things. They do other stuff. They don't do this on a regular. But you wouldn't know it because they act like they are called every day of their life. You can't separate whom God has called you to be from what he has called you to do. You can't distinguish the difference between the two. And Paul is not separating them. He's saying, I, I was called an apostle before I was born. In Galatians, he said, I was born as one untimely. I wish there was a different era in which I could have been born, he's saying, so that I didn't have to go through what I went through in order to become what I needed to become. I didn't want to kill Stephen. I thought I was doing God a favor. I thought I was helping him out by squashing this upstart religion that seemed to be heretical to me. I thought I was doing something good. Can you imagine the encounter after he was in Damascus and got saved? He had his moment with Ananias there. Ananias discipled him. He got so on fire in Damascus, they had to lower him in a basket over the wall at night just to get him out of the city so nobody would kill him. I mean, this man was, he didn't care for his life anymore. He wanted to make good for everything he had done bad. And then he went to Jerusalem after a little bit. Listen. That was more than just an encounter to say, I want you to know who I am, Peter. I want you to know who I am, James. I want you to know who I am, Thomas. That was a, that was a redo. That was a makeup. Peter, can you take me to Stephen's wife? Can, 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 I, can I talk to his kid? Can I talk to his kids, please? I don't know what I'm going to say, but I can't ignore him. His past haunted him every day. And the only way he was able to make any sense of it is to continually apply the cross and say, I shouldn't be here, but God called me. He called me. I shouldn't be doing this. I'm not worthy. And I don't know what your past looks like, but it's not worse than his. Hallelujah. You feel like you're disqualified because you've done something so horrible. You feel like that thing there, surely if somebody finds out, and they're going to find out at some point, if I start making a name for myself, somebody's going to tell, then they're going to say, look at him, he shouldn't. Look at her, he shouldn't. Then you will be able to go to them just like he went to, and this it wasn't in the Bible, you can't find where he went to Stephen's wife and kids and mama, and, but you know something like that happened. And all the other people who are unnamed that he hurt, 
Jerusalem was the hotbed of revival, and that's where they wanted to step it out. And I promise you, although the scriptures don't say this, Paul was a part of Christ's crucifixion. Promise you. Because he was, he, was a, he was a contemporary with Peter. They were the same age. Same age. And he was a Jewish rabbi, which meant that, and, and on the rise, he talks about it. He said, I was rising above all my brothers. And if you're that good, you're going to be a part of the leadership that makes decisions in Jerusalem. And on top of that, being a good Pharisee and a Jew, he would have to come for the feasts. Now, remember, Jesus lived in Galilee. That was his home. That's 90 miles north. But he had to come down for every one of the feasts. And when he came to Jerusalem, what did he do? He didn't hide out. He preached. You don't think Saul was there? Listen to what Jesus had to say? Because Saul was a part of the leadership, and he had to be there for the feast too. He may not have done anything or said anything to Jesus, but I promise you he was a part of the conversations. There's a lot for which Saul, who became Paul, same guy, there's a lot for which Saul had to regret. I don't know what yours is, but he says this in Timothy as he closes it. I'm not closing. He closed it. As he closes it. Just, I'm making it clear now. I just want you to know. I got a little ways to go. I don't want your expectations to get up there. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, I thought he was stopping. He didn't stop. As he closes it out, he said, I'm the foremost of sinners. And God did this in Timothy. God did this to make me an example. So that everybody who coming after me would know what mercy looks like. God has mercy on you. And not only to forgive, he has grace to make you into something you didn't know you could be. So that at some point, you could identify more with his grace and becoming than your own efforts. Again, you need to be able to testify that I am what I am only by God's grace. Not because of my education. Not because of my experience. Not because I'm intellectually on top of it. Not because I'm, I'm more superior in leadership skills. I am what I am by his grace. If you can't say that, you have some more grace to come into. Secondly, he, um, he understands that grace is, is weightier than his past. Now, his past is weighty, but he gets the grace is much weightier. Paul says it like this. In, in Romans chapter 5, he said, God shut up everybody in sin, everybody, so that nobody could commend themselves as being somebody who was worthy of being saved. So the Jews had the law, and the Gentiles did not. And the Jews having the law, though they had it, didn't obey it. And the Gentiles who did not have the law, they didn't obviously obey it. They just obeyed, they just disobeyed whatever they, the, the intent of their heart. So they were outside of the covenant. The Jews had the covenant but didn't obey it. And so everybody had the, had the, had the same, same stamp on them as a sinner. But where sin abound, grace abounded. How? Much more. 
And this is the beauty of grace. It overwhelms sin and its consequences. It doesn't equal it. God is not interested in bringing balance to the scales. So your sin was down here, weighted. I mean heavy. And then God brings grace, and so the scales begin to come like this. And you start feeling good, okay, okay. But God's not interested in balancing the scales because that just makes you innocent. Innocent's not what he's looking for. He's looking for righteous. He's looking for representative. He's looking for ambassadorial stuff. And so grace has to overcome not only your sin, but make you something that you're not. And so grace outweighs it over, way over, abundantly. Wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so when you enter into grace, God gives you a package that is illogical. It makes no sense because you're, you're not that good. You're not that skilled. You're not that competent. But you act like it. You appear to be amazing, but you know you. You know you. And that's just his grace that added much more to the scale so that nobody even notices your sin anymore. They don't notice your old life anymore. They just see you. They, they're my sister. <sighs> Oh, and this is what Paul is talking about. Grace fixed my past. It applied to my present, and it's helping me in my future. It's that stuff that just doesn't make any sense. It, it, it follows with God's idea of, of why he created you. Why do you have children? Don't answer because your kids are next to you. <laughs> Half of you are saying right now, Pastor, I was asking that same question. <laughs> Just last week, I said, God, why did I have these people? <laughs> why do you have them? In Northern Virginia, there was a stat, this was three years ago, that said it cost $362,000. In Northern Virginia, to take a child from the hospital at birth for graduation in high school. That's piano lessons, it's football, ballet, <laughs> food, clothes, tuition for school, whatever that is, fees you got to pay for lunch. All this stuff, 362000 Now, that was three years ago, so it's probably like three eighty now. And, and once you pay it out, you'll never see that money again. It's gone. <laughs> It's gone. It's go gone. Gone. You will never see it. Now, that's just what you spend in dollars. What about sleepless nights? Oh, oh, oh. touch the nerve. <laughs> Some of y'all been up all night last night. <laughs> Woo! Lordy, lordy. And there's no refunds on these people. What you got them, they are there for life. Can't take it back. So knowing all the time you're going to have to put in, all the money it's going to cost you, why you have these people? Why you have them? 
Because there's something that's wired like God on the inside of you that says, all I want to do is love something. I just want to love them. It's worth the cost. It's worth the cost. You don't even think about the cost. I mean, you do when you're paying. <laughs> when you're writing the check, you do. But afterwards, once the money is gone, you think, okay. <laughs> okay, we have one honest person here. Hey, you didn't even know what you were in for. The joy of having that little one overcame all of the idea of how much it was going to cost. God knew what he was in for when he created you. He knew. He knew. Love doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. He knew it was going to cost his son the greatest, the, the priceless value of the universe. His son. When he thought about you, love doesn't make any sense. And love is right in accordance with grace. It just doesn't make any sense what you're going to be. Everybody else will have gone through all the normal human channels to try to get to where you are. And all of a sudden, God just puts you there. And they're looking, thinking, wait a minute, that's not fair. You say, I know. I know, I, I know, I know. Pastors come to me who have got their PhDs and have written many books. They say, it's not fair. You have a great church. You don't have any debt on your new building. And you have thousands of people, and I can't figure out why I don't. I said, well, don't compare yourself to me. It's not smart. It just doesn't, never works well when you compare yourself to anybody else. But you can begin to look at how testimony appears. What does it look like to be made an example and I don't make any sense. I don't make any sense. I shouldn't be here. And you shouldn't be here listening to me. Save the grace of God. That, that makes me what I am. It's the only reason. I pray that you have that testimony. That you wake up tomorrow with a little bit more and that every day you, you, you figure out how to enter into more grace so that by next week when you come, you're able to say, if you weren't able to say it today, if you were really made by your own self, if you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, if your education is the thing with which you lead, if your money is the thing that really gives you a sense of well-being on the planet and significance, then next week when you come here, that doesn't define you anymore. Come on. I am what I am. Bye, Scott.